Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Everything F1 podcast. Today we're talking to Matt Bishop of the Aston Martin Cognizant F1 team. He really was a great guest with loads of stories to tell. But first... Please make sure you follow us on all our social media channels. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and YouTube at the handle at joinef one And of course, you can visit our website www.everythingf1.com. If you like what you hear with this podcast, hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast streaming service. And if you really like it, you can leave us a five star review. Now, over to that interview with Matt Bishop. Oh, hi, Matt. Uh, thank you very much for coming to join us on the Everything F1 podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Great. Um, now, for our uh, listeners that may not know who you are, which I'm sure there are only a very few because uh, you're very well known around the paddock, could you kind of briefly introduce yourself? I know you're currently um, at Aston Martin Cognizant F1 team uh, as, as their communications manager, um, but can you kind of give a summary of your career to date? Chief Communications Officer, if you want to be precise, actually. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> Forgot the chief. <laughs> chief Communications Officer. So, yes, uh, I run the comms at uh, Aston Martin Cognizant Formula One team. Um, prior to that, well, uh, in a nutshell, I kicked off 30 years or 25 years ago, probably, as a journalist and editor, F1 Racing, then Autosport, autosport.com. Uh, and then for my sins, I was hired by Ron Dennis to McLaren as, mm -hmm. again, communications director and then chief communications officer there. And then uh, I did a little bit of, um, I stepped away from Formula One for a short time and I did, uh, I was one of the founding team of W Series and I still um, uh, you know, have enormous fondness for W Series. It was greatly exciting to be involved in a startup in that way. But then Lawrence Stroll came along and asked me to join Aston Martin uh, as chief comms officer. And that's what I'm doing now. In between, I've written a novel, uh, nothing to do with Formula One. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the founding ambassadors of Racing Pride, which seeks to um, further the interests and rights of LGBTQ plus people in motorsport generally. Excellent. Well, that's a great summary. Uh, and all, all those I've got written in my notes ready to, uh, to, to kind of interrogate you with, really. Uh, nothing, nothing too, uh, nothing too uh, scary. Um, so let's talk about your early life then. You, you, you didn't really, you, I've, I've listened to podcasts previously and I've heard, I've heard conversations. You weren't really into kind of uh, motorsport in general uh, until you found a, a, a magazine on a, on a news, newspaper desk or something like that. Was that, was that how it happened? Yes, but I was only nine years old then, so give us a chance, you know. Um, <laughs> but yes, I wasn't brought up to, um, you know, n none of my um, family, mum, dad, anybody, nobody was interested in motorsport. And you have to remember that motorsport was a minority pursuit at those in those days. Nowadays, mm -hmm. it's on the television, it's all over the place, there's websites, of course, there weren't even websites in existence then. But to be honest, Formula One, even mighty Formula One, wasn't on the television except for the British Grand Prix and the Monaco Grand Prix generally when I was a boy. Uh, so if you, you know, I don't know what, let's say the 1975 German Grand Prix, um, mm -hmm. it, you know, you wouldn't have known that uh, that it was uh, won by Carlos Reutemann, which it was, of course. Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't have known that it was won by, by Carlos Reutemann on the Sunday night. You might not have even known on the Monday morning unless you bought the Daily Telegraph 
and looked in the sporting brief and found the results in, in, um, in four point. You'd have to wait for Autocar and Motorsport News, which is then called Motoring News, on Wednesday mm-hmm. and then over Sport itself, of course, on, on Thursday. So it was rare. But then I found a magazine called Motorsport, sorry, Autosport, <laughs> Autosport, found it, as you say, on, on the newsagent's counter, asked the newsagent, what was that? He explained. I swapped my pocket money uh, subscription from Shoot Football Magazine to Autosport. Mm. The rest was history. I was hooked. So you've had a love of all motorsports, Formula One being a, a favourite? Formula One being the favourite, but, you know, back in those days, you know, I devoured anything. I, you know, I, I read all the Formula Two reports, the Formula Three reports, I read the IndyCar reports. Uh, more of a single-seater man than a, than a, or boy in those days than a rallying man or boy. But mm-hmm. not that I, I don't, you know, I respect enormously uh, uh, rallying and, uh, and rally drivers. But yeah. uh, no, I suppose it was more of, and, and tin tops too, but really it was single-seaters that uh, floated my boat and still do. Yeah, and that's why you're in, in the industry still as we, uh, as we speak today. Um, so was it always uh, in journalism that you were, you were going to head, head into after picking up that magazine, in, uh, the autosport magazine in the thing? Did you think, you know, this is a career that I want. I want to I be within mo- the motorsport world, be a journalist and, and kind of work my way up? Well, I was nine when I first started reading Autosport, so I probably wanted to be a Formula One driver, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> because that's what that's what that's what kids want to be. You know, if you're not going to be a fireman, um, then um, you end up being a Formula One driver. My brother ended up being a fireman, but oh, okay. uh, anyway, so uh, <laughs> so, but very soon, obviously, in adulthood, you realise that that uh, isn't, you know, that isn't going to happen. I did end up um, doing road testing uh, in okay. um, Car Magazine, which is still existing existing car magazine features editor and doing road tests and things like that so uh, but i soon realized that i wasn't going to be obviously quick enough to be a racing driver that's life motor racing is actually full of people who end up working in comms pr marketing journalism and other roles who um weren't quick enough to be racing drivers by the way i never got very close i I will (laughs) admit that Others got much closer and uh, uh, much, much closer. I mean, I didn't get remotely close, but I, as a boy, obviously it was the fantasy, but then it soon yeah. became clear that that wasn't going to happen. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, not, when I was a kid, I wasn't thinking about uh, journalism. But as I became, as you grow through adolescence to, to your late teens, I realized uh-huh. that I could express myself both in speech and in um, uh, uh, writing. Uh, and so th- that was a natural progression, I suppose. Was it an inspiration for? Was it your mother that was a, a writer? Was that was that an inspiration that you uh, you took from her? So she was a novelist, but she novelist. wrote her she wrote five novels in her life, but the first two before I was born, and then the last three fifty years later, uh, in right, retirement okay. she's now passed away. But uh, no, the inspiration I think would have been Nigel Roebuck and Peter Windsor particularly those two. Nigel Roebuck, who was, of course, the, the autosport auto uh, chief F1 writer, and um, mm-hmm. Peter Windsor, who was uh, the sports editor and also wrote the reports, Form 1 reports, for Autocar. So autosport and autocar, Roebuck and Windsor, and, yeah, I mean, they 
were in those days, I suppose, quite young, particularly Peter, young uh, reporters. And I was a kid, a mad fan, reading everything they wrote. And now they're both very, very dear friends. And I've worked with both of them, edited uh, and commissioned both of them over the years and, 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 and still talk to them, meet them, mm. uh, have a glass of wine with them, particularly Nigel, uh, <laughs> more likely a coffee with Peter. And, and great mates. And what a privilege to end up being great mates of the people who inspired you when you were a boy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Things that people dream about. Um, so when you when you did start with the with the Formula One journalism or motorsport journalism, you uh, joined was it was it the F1 racing magazine? Uh, and then it quickly became one of the most successful racing magazines uh, out there or the most successful. Yeah, I'd been at Car Magazine for a few years and, and gradually began to persuade the editor, Gavin Green, who, who's also still a mate, to uh, include more and more racing, motorsport and Formula One um, content, if possible. And that began to happen. Uh, but yes, in the end, I was headhunted to F1 Racing, which had just been launched um, mm -hmm. at, at, just a few months before. And it was in English, obviously, on sale in the UK. And we realized that here was a real opportunity because there is no more international sport than Formula One. I mean, football, of course, is just as international, but yeah. French fans want to read about French footballers. German fans want to read about German footballers. Whereas mm. the world over, doesn't matter whether you're in the UK, France, Germany, Brazil, Spain, wherever, Italy, you want to read about the same 20 drivers. <laughs> and we realized therefore there was a real opportunity to make f1 racing completely international so when i started in 1996 it was on sale in one country in one language by the time i left in 2007 11 years later it was on sale in 34 languages in 110 countries and wow. it was the world's best-selling um motorsport magazine and of course it was pre-digital so there's no such thing as a website and mm -hmm. the growth was exponential, and it was great fun. Yeah, it sounds it. Do you have lots of experiences, uh, obviously, with, with interviews, interviewing the, the past drivers? Uh, is, is it one that kind of stands out for you during your time uh, when you were kind of during that era? Well, yeah, between 96 and 2007, you know, that was a great era. I think that was a great oh, era, yes. albeit some of it was dominated by... Uh, Michael Schumacher, who was uber successful at that time. Um, mm -hmm. And that made it a little bit difficult sometimes because there was so much domination by Michael. But before and after, you know, um, there, there were other people have, getting a proper look in. I suppose that the, the, in terms of the driver, driver who was very successful in that period, particularly at the beginning of that period, uh, was Mika Hakkinen, who was rather dour and certainly had a reputation for being dour and mm -hmm. not saying very much uh, and some people even thought he wasn't the brightest button in the box but they were completely wrong he just mm. focused on his racing and he didn't really want to waste a lot of time talking to journalists but i hit it off with him i hit it off with him and uh, i ended up doing a few interviews with him uh, in the mid and late 90s and early noughties and perhaps getting through to him in a way, we just, for some reason, hit it off. Sometimes uh, 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 a glass of vodka helped to lubricate those uh, <laughs> channels. That was all good. But um, 
so I was a big Hackenham fan. I mean, mm. when I say fan, I was a journalist, but uh, but I recognised and admired his abnormal speed. You know, mm -hmm. I think one would have to concede that Michael Schumacher's magnum opus was greater than Mika Hakkinen's, more wins, more championships. Mm. But in terms of sheer speed, and it's always been the absolute sheer speed of a driver that made me most excited. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we've seen many faster than Mika Hakkinen when he's been really on it. And in fact, Martin Brundle, who is a good friend of mine, but Martin has been, of course, a teammate of both Schumacher and Hakkinen, a teammate mm. of Schumacher at Benetton, and a teammate of Hakkinen at McLaren. And he says, although that both of them were extraordinarily good and extraordinarily quick, the quicker, yeah. sheer speed, Hakkinen. Oh, wow. There you go. That's, that's, that's the best kind of uh, judgment, really, isn't it, from a teammate that's been with both. Um, I'm not sure you might want to, you want to talk about this. Maybe you might do. But uh, in my research, I came across, uh, in, was it 1996, uh, that you and your photographer from your magazine discovered uh, the the extra pedal uh, in the McLaren. Um, did with, were you given kind of uh, any inside information, or, or was it just a, a feeling that you had that that that, that happened made made that happen? Nineteen ninety seven, actually. It oh, was um, and the, and the photographer is Darren Heath, and it was Darren Heath's uh, genius really that did it. What happened was that. Uh, let me just quickly get this right. Yes, what happened was that, of course, it was pre-digital. So mm -hmm. Darren came back from the Austrian Grand Prix in 1997, and yeah. he was looking at the transparencies on the light box. And he said, Matt, come over here. This looks odd. He said, why <laughs> are the two McLarens, their rear brake discs are glowing bright red? Hmm but not their fronts, just their rears, and it's on the exit of a corner, the Nicky Lauda curve. So I looked again, and I said, well, it can't be, mate. How, why on earth would they be breaking on the, on, on the exit of the corner? <laughs> he said, exactly. Why are they doing it? I said, you must be wrong, mate. It must be the entry. He said, no, it's the exit. So we began to look at it and wonder why that could possibly be. And then we did do some you know, what I would call journalistic research. Uh, mm -hmm. And even now, even now, 24 years later, I will protect my source, but my source wasn't at McLaren. But oh, in the okay. end, we found out that there was a second brake pedal. Uh, and I won't go into details of how we found it out, but we found it out. So what we needed to then do was get proof of it, for photograph of it. Yeah. Next race was at Nürburgring. And it so happened the McLarens were leading first and second. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't at that race, actually. I was at home. And I was ready with the phone. And we'd blagged, or Darren had blagged, a paddock bike from Jordan. Uh, obviously, the team I now work for, Aston Martin, but then Jordan. Yeah, of course. And mm -hmm. ready that whenever or if ever one of those McLarens broke down, I would call him, tell him where it was, and he would jump on the paddock bike, get down there and try and get his camera into the cockpit and the footwell to take a picture. It worked a treat. Not only one, <laughs> but both of them broke down at the end of the pit straight. Darren went charging down on his bike, managed to get there before the marshals had, um, had prevented journal uh, sorry, any photographers getting there. 
Coulthard had put his steering wheel back on, which you're not supposed to. Um, yeah. So he couldn't get his camera into the football. But luckily, in his frustration, Hakkinen, who'd been leading the race, had not put his steering wheel back on so he could get his camera all the way down there. And he took an absolutely stunning picture. It's a famous picture. And we yeah. now had, we knew what McLaren were doing. We knew, having done our research, how it worked. And all we needed was the picture to supplement the glowing rear brake discs on the exit of the louder curve. But we now had a picture of the actual brake pedal itself. Mm. By the way, we called it McLaren's brilliant breakthrough, spelled B-R-A-K-E hyphen through, <laughs> to make clear that it wasn't a cheat, because it wasn't. It was entirely no. legal. It was very, very ingenious and entirely legal. But, um, but McLaren were not happy to see it uh, published, of course, because every team wants its secret advantage to remain secret so that it yes. may remain an advantage. In the end, I ended up working for... Um, for McLaren, but it didn't look like that was going to be the case around that time. Yeah. So, how did that conversation start then? Obviously, if you, you you've uncovered this top secret thing with your uh, your, your uh, Darren Heath, uh, your photographer friend, um, but years later, Ron, uh, in the back end of two thousand and seven, uh, after the, um, the the scandal with uh, McLaren again, um, well, not that the photography the, the photo was a scandal, but uh, in two thousand and seven there was the scandal, um, the Spygate. Uh, Ron Dennis came up to you and said. I need a communications manager to control the kind of communications of the team. Was that what it was? Or how, were yes. you surprised to get that so, call? <laughs> no, because, because <laughs> in 1997, there was a lot of water under the bridge by that. It was 10 years later. Yeah, in 1997, sure. Ron was very unhappy. He made his displeasure very clear, but he blamed Darren more than anyone else. It was very clear right. to he, Ron's quite black and white, and he just thought, pictures by Darren, Darren's taking the picture. And at that point, he thought maybe that Darren had, you know, broken into the factory or broken into the garage and, he, you know, done something genuinely illegal to find out uh, in order to get access to the cars. But, but of course, he hadn't. He'd taken no. them in an entirely appropriate place where a photographer is allowed to be on the racetrack. But Ron hadn't figured that yet. Eventually, it became clear to him, and it was just annoying to him very annoying to <laughs> but then over the next few years ron ron loves ron doesn't really like journalism or, or, he, doesn't, or he doesn't have a nice affinity to journalism he, he found journalists irritating but he did like presentational detail he still does always yes. has and he liked the fact that f1 racing magazine looked beautiful which it did uh, and it was elegant it was well designed and well laid out and the photography was great and the graphics were good and we wanted it to be posh uh, mm -hmm. and quality and to really match the brand values of Formula One itself. And he liked that. So he, for some reason, began to like or at least favour me. And he and I began to get on. Very different types, of course. You know, yeah. uh, you know he's the richest Croesus. I was a struggling journalist. Um, you know, journalism is not well paid. And uh, there we are. But we began to hit it off and have dinners frequently and lunches at races and sometimes in London and Woking and so on. More London mm -hmm. than Woking, really. Anyway, by the time that Spygate was kicking off, he needed a strategic comms director. He had already managers, PR managers and so on, but he didn't have a strategic comms director and he wanted one. And I was the man that, in the frame, in the sense, the person he knew, liked, trusted, 
uh, who understood Formula One, who understood Formula One media, who understood the personalities, Max Mosley, Bernie Ecclestone, everybody around, and asked me to join. And suddenly I had a bit of a financial fillip um, because I moved from journalism wages to McLaren director wages, which I can tell you <laughs> is chalk and cheese. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, so you were you were at McLaren for quite a few years then, when you? you uh, I think did you leave ten in years. 10, 10 years, two thousand seventeen. Um, so you 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 obviously were at the start, not the not the very start of Lewis Hamilton's career, but uh, kind of as he had been introduced at, at, at the start of the two thousand and seven season. You kind of came in towards the end of his first season. Did you know instantly? Um, obviously, as a journalist for, prior to that, but um, when he came into Formula One, that he was going to be the force that he was. Before then, what I is. think in, G, in GP2, it was already clear. I can't remember right. what race it was. I think Silverstone was one and uh, Turkey was the other. Uh, two utterly brilliant races um, by Lewis in GP2 in 2006. And then in 2007, obviously I was a journalist, an editor, but nobody's ever started off as a rookie like that. Nine points mm. finishes on the spin. Um, absolutely brilliant. Uh, you, you know, and matching matching his teammate who was not only a double world champion but had won the previous two world championships fernando alonso you know yeah. a rookie to come in and, uh, and match fernando alonso in the way that he did stunning and i remember writing editorials in the first couple of months of the 2007 formula one season saying this guy could end up being one of the all-time greats and i got very seriously criticized for it Obviously, there wasn't social media in those days, but there were forums, internet forums, mm. and people saying what an idiot Bishop is to say that after five races that this guy could end up being one of the all-time greats. Well, I was right. I'm not saying I'm always <laughs> right, but I was absolutely damn right then. And then, of course, I worked with Lewis closely from 2008 to 2012. 2008, when I joined McLaren, 2012, when he left it. Yeah. And worked very closely with him. And I have enormous uh, affection and respect for Lewis Hamilton. Uh, first of all, he's about one of the best drivers we've ever seen now. I think you have to accept not just the volume of victories, championships, race wins, pole positions, all the rest of it, but also the fact that season after season, from 2007 till now 2021, he has never had a season when he hasn't won at least a Grand Prix, in fact, I think two Grand Prix is the lowest number he's ever won in that period in a season. Mm. Even and people often say, oh, he's only good because he's got the best car. Also wrong. Uh, yes, he does often have a very good or best car. That's always been the case. Do you think Juan Manuel Fangio um, laboured around in uh, uh, hopeless racing cars? Of course he didn't. He was the best. No. So he moved from uh, Alfa Romeo on to Mercedes and then to Maserati and so on. He, he, and he always chased the best car, and that's why he won five world championships in four teams. But mm. Lewis, uh, obviously the best drivers are in demand by the best teams, but I remember the beginning of 2009, which was the second year that I worked with him, because I first worked with him in 2008, but it, mm -hmm. he won the championship, and magnificently brilliant memory it was to win the championship with him. But in 2009, we started off with a dreadful car, absolutely dreadful car. Yeah. And 
our drivers were Lewis Hamilton and Heike Kovalainen. Uh, Heike Kovalainen, quick driver. Don't get me wrong, quick driver. But mm -hmm. you've got to be more than a quick driver to live with Lewis Hamilton. You've got to be super quick because Lewis yeah. is super quick and super consistent uh, on street circuits, on uh, fast circuits, in qualifying, uh, in the race, when the tire tires are degrading, in the rain. Whatever's mm. going on, Lewis is right up there and utterly consistent. And he managed to win two Grand Prix in that really rather mediocre McLaren. And I always say to them, if anybody ever says he only ever wins because he had the best car, I just say 2009, Google it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We, uh, being a, an online forum, we, we obviously see all the criticisms uh, and it's usually based basically upon a dislike for, I think, Hamilton outside of the car rather than in the car. Um, but you know, this this is the online world. Uh, it, it gives gives voices to to lots of uh, lots of lots of an, 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 uh, anonymous people. Uh, I, I actually think that uh, Lewis is also. I think he's the best driver on track, and he's the best driver off track, with the possible rival of Sebastian Vettel, who I now work with. I think off yes. track, those two, Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel, they have grown from boy to man, and I've watched them grow from boy to man during my career. Yeah. They're both now in their middle 30s. They both understand what they think matters in the real world, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's Black Lives Matter or end racism or whether it's uh, standing up for diversity and inclusion, um, uh, whether it's, for instance, recently Sebastian Vettel's very stout defense of LGBTQ plus people in, in various parts of the world. And I actually think that so going back to Lewis, the person you've been asking me about, Lewis, you know, the best driver on track, best driver off track. When he, he was a boy, really, 22, when I first started working with him, and now he's 36. I don't work with him anymore, of course, but I saw him uh, mature, and I've seen him mature more. And I think that it's astonishing that he can still be so superbly good on track and yet have the hinterland of interest in order to have make such a big difference off track and put his money where his mouth is don't forget the lewis hamilton foundation or whatever it's called 20 million uh, of his own money 20 million pounds of his own money seriously impressive absolutely um and he's a brand himself uh, i think bernie eccleston eccleston said we need more drivers like this because he's the one that's driving the brand forward uh, throughout, throughout the whole of the world uh, and i think as you as you mentioned sebastian vettel has has in his later years, that over the past couple of years, has really kind of become that kind of brand as well. Although it's a shame that Seb doesn't embrace the social media aspect of it. He chooses um, not to. He chooses not to. He does a lot of things that he doesn't want to get publicity for. And I now see that working with him. Yeah. I actually think it's not over the last two years. I think it's over the last six months. I do think that Sebastian has found his home from home uh, with Aston Martin, cognizant from one team. Um, you know, he wasn't very happy at Ferrari. That's We all know that. He yes. wasn't very happy at Ferrari. He was hugely successful at Red Bull. But I think he has found some kindred spirits here at Aston Martin. Um, and we get on extremely well with him. And mm -hmm. he, we allow him to do what he wants to do off track. Uh, and he's beginning to perform better and better on track. And, uh, yeah, I think he's... Um, he's an incredibly impressive person. I also think, as I say, he's not on social media. So there are things that I know that he does um, that 
he doesn't want publicity for, so I therefore won't talk about. But I'm talking about, uh, you know, troubled people that he helps out um, with kindness. Let me just put it that way. Yeah, and I can see that he 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 seems very genuine. He's got a very he's got a very close relationship with Lewis Hamilton as well. Um, obviously, very very supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, was on his knees straight away um, to join uh, and 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 promote that diversity within the sport. Um, I want to talk about actually while we while we're on kind of the diversity aspect of it. Obviously, uh, I'm sure you won't mind me saying that you are a very proud uh, gay man yourself. Uh, LGBTQ uh, causes. Uh, you, you are happy to talk about, and 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 yes. we pride ourselves on uh, everything. Everyone has been as inclusive as we as we can, and we always voice um, our opinions to 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 include inclusivity. What do you think of of the We Racers One movement um, that Formula One has brought in? Is is it is it going to help um, LGBTQ um, plus um, people uh, like yourself uh, get into the industry, or you know, feel welcome in the industry? Well, I, obviously, I welcome and support and applaud uh, We Race as one. Uh, you know, it, it, it intends, obviously, it's not just focused on LGBTQ plus people. No, it's, of uh, course. It, it aims to end racism. It ends to aim, uh, end, sorry, it aims to end discrimination in terms of gender, sexuality, etc. cetera, uh, gender identity, indeed. Uh, and of course, disability and all, all these other things. So look, any right-thinking person, I think, would be in broad support of we race as one. And Formula One is doing its bit in that way, as indeed are, you know, other sports. Look at football with its rainbow laces and kick it out, those kinds yes. of things that have been, um, uh, that I also support and applaud. I think, obviously, when we race as one began, it was more than anything else a hashtag. Uh -huh. uh, and then it became clear that... Uh, Let's you know, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, so it was a hashtag and it was a movement, and there was some publicity around it. And then this year, it's um, been embraced uh, in different ways by different Formula One teams, and our Formula One team, Aston Martin Cognizant Formula One team. And I mentioned Cognizant not just because it's the partner, the uh, title partner, but also because they have been extremely um, enthusiastic and effortfully supportive of um, our partnership with Racing Pride. And I'm an ambassador of right. Racing Pride. Racing Pride was set up two years ago in conjunction mm -hmm. with Stonewall, which is obviously an LGBTQ plus charity, in order to further the interests of, of um, LGBTQ plus people in motorsport. And that could be, a, a, you know, a teenage carter mm -hmm. um, who might be having concerns about uh, homophobic bullying. It might be the owner of a cart team or the boss of a cart team who would be casually using the wrong vocabulary, like saying, and I'm afraid we do still sometimes see this, oh, you drove really gay today. Yeah. Teach them not to say that. You don't mm. know who you're saying it to. You don't know who is overhearing it. Even if the person you're speaking to is uh, heterosexual, you might be instilling in them uh, the idea that that's an appropriate way to disparage somebody's driving. Some mm. people think this is all not very important. It is actually very important. Um, and it's so easy to fix. Or it could be a 45-year-old mechanic that's worked for a Formula One team for 20 years and has been closeted all that time. And perhaps in those 20 years has actually got married to, if it's a man, another man, and might actually be 
you know, a closeted gay man married and living with another gay man and can't come out to his, uh, or feels he can't come out to his colleagues at McLaren mm. or Williams or Red Bull or wherever it is. Yeah. And uh, so any, whether you're 15 or 45 or anything in between, uh, Racing Pride seeks to be a support. And I'm not telling people you must come out. That's entirely up to everybody themselves, their individual yeah, sure. decision. Uh, but uh, it is an issue. Uh, it's an issue in football. It's an issue in some sports more than others. But there are sports where we have seen trailblazers. I mean, we've just seen a gold medal for Tom Daly uh, in the yeah. Olympics and, and, and the brilliant performance it was. And I remember when he came out, um, he was about 20, wasn't he, or something like that? It was about eight years yeah. ago. Mm -hmm. And he came out, uh, and that was a courageous and difficult decision for him. But now he is, you know, a very beloved household name and a world-class sportsman. He's also... Uh, a, a pioneer and a trailblazer for LGBTQ plus rights and a greater figure for it. And I think he's actually done a huge amount for Olympic diving. It's made it more famous. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, I don't know if any of the current Formula One drivers are gay. I think they're all straight, actually, as far as I know. But there have been. Uh, gay drivers in the history of the sport, LGBTQ plus drivers, and there mm -hmm. have actually probably been closeted ones as well. But all I do know is that if a driver came into Formula One yeah. next year, the year after, the year after that, four years, five years, six years, whenever it is, and entered the sport as a gay man and was open about it, in the same way as Tom Daly is, he would become the biggest sports star in the whole world if he was successful. Wow. Yeah, it's it's good. It, yeah, it's this is what we we need these sorts of movements that will kind of entice people to come in and say, look, well, you know, I am who I am. So that's quite cliche to say that. Um, but you know, I am who I am. This is, the, and I want to be the best Formula One driver or the best whatever sports star. So. Um, off the back of that, did you, did you feel welcome always within F1 um, as a gay man? Uh, have you always been open uh, and, and honest about your sexuality within the sport? Um, when I arrived in Formula One from the beginning, yes, I was. So from the mid-90s, I was open. I was the only gay in the village um, <laughs> at that time. I probably wasn't, but I was the only out gay in the village at that sure. time. And yeah. most people were very nice, welcoming, uh, friendly, and so on. There were some exceptions, one notable exception. Um, uh, uh, there was a racing driver at the time who routinely called me a <laughs> um, mm. So, uh, well, I was a bit fat, so I couldn't really argue about that. And I was gay, um, so I couldn't really argue about that. I'm a little bit thinner now, mm. but I'm still gay. Anyway, <laughs> he, he used to call me that. It didn't do him any good, um, no. uh, but it was slightly upsetting to me, slightly. Uh, you know, I always think that uh, it's you can't really be offended by somebody if they disparage you and, and you don't have respect for them. Uh, it's only really can be offensive to you or upsetting to you if somebody whom you respect disparages you. So sure. that wasn't too bad. But no, that there was there was a little bit of um, 
perhaps resistance and i may not have heard all of the cat calling let's say because yeah. people are very more likely to say things behind your back but anyway after a while i began to find my way and here i still am 25 years later and you know I, I'm not the only gay in the village anymore. There are other, <laughs> uh, 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 LGBTQ plus people in Formula One, but they're mostly in the media. So they're mostly comms mm. people, journalists, um, marketing people, and so on. They're not generally mechanics and engineers. Or if right. they are, they're mostly closeted. Not all, but mostly closeted. And... Uh, I, Again, going back to Racing Pride, I think that's one of the things that Racing Pride is trying to change is to two things. One is to enable people, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. Therefore, yeah. young LGBTQ plus people can think, yes, this could be a sport that I could work in rather than, no, it looks like something that wouldn't welcome me. Mm -hmm. And also that the existing people who may be closeted LGBTQ plus in the sport can say, actually, I'm going to come out. I know I've been closeted for 15 years, but guess what? I'm happy to come out. And you know what? I think mostly they'd be welcomed and applauded. Okay, well, let's go kind of a side. It's not a sidestep. It's not a massive leap, really. Um, but let's talk about the W Series. Um, you were a, a, a great part in, in the creation uh, of the W Series uh, for women, obviously bringing women into mo more women into motorsport, more women, uh, giving them the, the possibility to hopefully step up one day into top flight Formula One or Formula Two, um, you know, and that sort of thing. Uh, what came, well, how did that come about for you? Uh, how, did, how did you get involved? So Is it something? I worked with Ron Dennis for years and years at McLaren. Um, and, and then, um, and I worked, first of all, for the first six months when Zach Brown arrived, I worked well with him as well. And, um, but, you know, in the end, um, nothing lasts forever. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I, you know, Zach and I had a chat and we, I, I decided to move on. He decided that would be okay as well. And by the way, that, that, that's, that happens, that's life. And yeah. uh, I was I was perfectly it was very amicable and I have huge um, fondness for the team and for my many friends that still work for the team. Um, anyway, so then I didn't know really what to do for a little while. I began to set myself up as a consultant and I was consulting um, for W Series because it was a secret at that time. But David Coulthard, who of course I knew very very well. Yeah, contacted me and said, look, me and a mate, Sean Wadsworth, who's still the chairman of W Series, we're starting this thing with a woman called Catherine Bonmuir, who is still the chief executive. Mm -hmm. And uh, we think we'd like some consulting advice from you because of your knowledge of comms, and media, and journalism and around the sport. So I went to see them and began to consult. And then very soon it became clear, which was nice for me, that they wanted me full-time as a comms director. So I joined full-time as a comms director, stopped consulting and started working full-time mm -hmm. and was there for the launch of it, managed the media launch of it, um, which was uh, hugely successful and massively enjoyed it. I was there for two and a half years. Uh, the drivers are great. Uh, it was so such fun to be involved in a startup, which I'd never done, obviously working for, McLaren, which was hardly a startup, you know, very established <laughs> team and, yeah. and journalism before also not startup. So 
look, it was it was great. And I was there for the first year when we raced on the DTM platform. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the next year, COVID got in the way and we had uh, had a, a sabbatical or the W Series had a sabbatical. And then I was involved, uh, you know, in, in um, helping Sean and Catherine and David uh, get W Series onto the Formula One undercard, which it is now racing on in 2021. And of course, therefore, uh, I'm at the same events, you know, now with Aston Martin and... and um, uh, and watching um, the young women uh, racing each other. We've hired mm. one of them to Aston Martin, uh, Jessica Hawkins, yes. who is uh, very talented racing driver, um, very inexperienced because of lack of money, um, right. but, but a remarkable person and a real battler. And she is now a driver ambassador at Aston Martin. And, you know, that's good for our D&I. For Aston Martin's DNI as well. She's in a relationship with one of the other drivers, Abby Eaton, now living together. Oh, okay. They, they found love at W Series, those two. Wow. Women. So, you know, it, it's a great story. And I look out for W Series. I, you know, like and occasionally retweet their tweets. Uh, <laughs> I, I regard it as a, a wonderful movement. And I, I think it is a really necessary thing. Do I know whether or not one of the existing drivers or even one of the future W Series drivers will go on into Formula One? No. That was going to be my next question. (laughs) Yeah, well, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Um, But certainly one of the problems for female drivers has been that there haven't been the opportunities. And strangely, there haven't been the backing. People think that sponsors would be eager to fall over themselves to to finance uh, female drivers. Such is not the case. W Series is very needed. And I don't know. All I do know, again, is in the same way as if uh, a future Formula One driver was a gay man. If a future Formula One driver was a woman, then she would become the biggest star in the world, particularly if she was successful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually spoke to uh, Jamie Chadwick earlier today, um, obviously 2019 uh, W Series champion and she's leading the championship this year. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, she mentioned, uh, obviously, not gaining super license points. Um, do you think that's something that they could introduce uh, and, and give the opportunity for W Series um, drivers to, to gain super license points by, you know, per, per, you know, performing in the W Series? They do. They do currently get them, but they don't, they, they don't get enough to, to race in, um, in Formula 1. You need... Right. Uh, I can't remember how many is it. Is it 40 you need to race in Formula One? Yeah. A little bit less than that to do FP1 and FP2 on a Friday. Uh, But from memory, I mean, you can Google it, but from memory, I think you'd have to be champion, W Series champion three times in a row or something like that (laughs) in order to get as many super license points. That's probably what Jamie Jamie means. Yeah. Uh, But but anyway, uh, that it, it, it is an FIA affiliated championship and there are, uh, super license points awarded. Uh, it, remember, it is Formula Three cars, so yeah. nobody would expect. It's very rare. I know Max Verstappen did it, and years before Kimi Raikkonen did it, and long before that, it was it was quite common to go from Formula Three to Formula One, but not now. Now, now you go via what used to be GP Two and now Formula Two. So if it was, it, this is a Formula Three championship, and by the way, the W Series cars have about a hundred bhp less 
than the FIA International Formula Three cars. Oh, okay. The series cars are Tatus cars. Uh, mm-hmm. The international FI Formula Three cars are Dolaris, and right. they have about a hundred horsepower, less than the, the than the Dolaris. So nobody would expect a, a male driver to go from that kind of uh, racing car with about three hundred horsepower uh-huh. to a Formula One car with knocking a thousand horsepower. <laughs> nobody. Yeah. Ex- so why would you expect it of women? Nobody right. expected of men. So actually, I think. That, you know what one would expect and hope is that the best drivers in W Series, the winners, the champions, people like Jamie Chadwick, as you mentioned, would their next step would be international FIA Formula Three and then perhaps Formula Two, mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe in the fullness of time, wouldn't it be wonderful Formula One? But you know, let's say another driver, Alice Powell. Now Alice Powell is uh, uh, competing. I think she's vying for the championship lead with uh, Jamie Chadwick at the moment. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, Alice is a great person and a great driver, but she's in her late twenties. Now, right. if if a male driver was in his late twenties in Formula Three, nobody would dream mm. of suggesting that he's going to get to Formula One, and nobody really thinks Alice will. It's probably right. likely that there's somebody who is currently fourteen or 15, or 16, or 17, who will join W Series in the future and then will be the right age to do a Verstappen. Yeah, uh, but it, but it's it's an important step, isn't it, for for women in in in, in motorsport and, and and trying to get them on the way, even if it's just to inspire the next generation of totally. Uh, Again, if you can see it, you can be it. So uh, you, you know, I remember being at Brands Hatch for the last race of the 2019 W Series Championship. And it was a big festival race we had. And, you know, usually, usually you see crowds and it's dads and sons. Mm -hmm. Suddenly we saw mums and daughters, mums and daughters in their thousands. Uh, And we said to all our drivers, give every single one an autograph, give every single one a selfie. And they did. And you could see these young female Jamie Chadwick fans. And, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about then your 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 novel. You you, you obviously had a, a t- some time off a sabbatical where you uh, decided to uh, to write a novel. Um, do you want to tell us a bit a bit about that? And obviously, you said you said earlier that your your mother was a novelist, um, so it was in the blood, as it were. Was it always the desire to do a novel? Uh, I suppose I always thought I had a novel in me. Um, <laughs> my mother was a novelist. Uh, she died in 2013. She died of cancer. And at that point, I set up a foundation called the Bernadine Bishop Appeal. Her name was Bernadine Bishop. Okay. Uh, and it was, um, I, I didn't want to run a charity. So I did a deal with Click Sergeant, uh, as it was then called, brilliant charity, which is now called La- Young Lives Versus Cancer. Uh, anyway, yeah. uh, where, whereby my mother's charity, she, she was, uh, of course, passed away, but the charity that uh, continues to bear her name or the, the fundraisers for Click Sergeant, which is now Young Lives Versus Cancer. So that's what Bernadine Bishop Appeal does. And we have raised quite a bit of money, the Bernadine Bishop Appeal has. And her last three novels, um, the royalty, no, the, the last two novels, which were both published posthumously, the royalties from that went to the uh, Bernadine Bishop Appeal. What was the point of me taking the royalties? 
she did the work, she passed away. So we started a charity. And mm. then my novel, um, which was published last year, all the um, proceeds, every penny has gone to and is continuing to go to the Bernadine Bishop Appeal. It's uh, a book which draws on my experience, but it is complete fiction. It was set, it is set in London between 1989 and 1991, which was a period for gay men that was very, very difficult because of HIV, AIDS, and people were dying like flies, particularly young men were dying like mm. flies. I didn't die, pretty obviously, but only by luck. A lot of my friends did. And I went to a lot of funerals. There was a movie around that time called Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, mm. It seemed to me that every year I went to four funerals and a wedding. And the four funerals were young gay men who died sometimes age 18, 20, 22, 24, sometimes mm -hmm. despised and rejected, sometimes entirely alone, disowned even by their mm -hmm. family and friends because everyone was so frightened about AIDS. I wanted to write a novel about that because at the time there had been quite a successful and interesting oeuvre of fiction in the UK and the US, particularly in the US actually. Uh, mm. But when thankfully and, uh, and brilliantly antiretroviral meds were invented in the mid 90s, which turned HIV AIDS into a condition that can be managed by meds rather than an instant killer or a quick killer. By the way, uh, HIV is still a big problem in the world. There are 38 million people living with HIV in the world, some of whom do not have access to antiretroviral meds, and for them it is still a fatal disease. And there have been 32 million people died of AIDS. Uh, in the mm. history of this planet is a huge number, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, once in the Western world, particularly in the UK and the US, it was no longer that surefire killer that it had been. The oeuvre of fiction based around the narrative backdrop of HIV AIDS began to cease being written, which is a good thing. Right. There's a good thing because it was no longer a, 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 the, the terrible uh, ever-present killer that was dominating the lives of particularly gay male authors. Hmm. But I missed reading some of it, and I kept waiting for somebody to write something, and they never did. So I realised I'd have to write something myself, and I did. And I did write it, and, you know, uh, J.K. Rowling will not envy my sales figures, but it, <laughs> we did sell out the first print run, and we're now on the second print run, and all the money goes to charity. It's called The Boy Made the Difference. If your uh, listeners and viewers would like to buy it, even if you don't like reading it, even if you find you don't think it's a good novel or you think I'm an idiot or you think the subject matter is not for you or whatever, you're giving your money to a charity that looks after and helps the interests of children with cancer. What could be more deserving than mm. Click Sergeant? Young Lives Versus Cancer, which is the charity that benefits. So I've enjoyed writing it uh, and I've enjoyed uh, publicizing it. And I've yes. enjoyed being able to say, which I can, that I'm a published novelist, which uh, <laughs> not everybody in the world can say and not many people in Formula One can say. No, absolutely not. Is it, is it a one-time a one -time thing? Did you enjoy the process so much you're going to do it again? Or is it you, something you you've done it now? You can't combine it. One thing I know is that it... it, it 
completely takes over your heart, body, mind, and soul. You, you, for, for, for any fiction, for anything creative, whether it's a movie, a play, a novel, uh, for it to grab the audience mm -hmm. or the reader and make those people care about the characters, what happens to them, the people who have created it have to be completely immersed in the process of the creation of the fiction, whether it's a film or a movie or a, or, or a play or a, or a novel indeed. I now realize that having gone through the process and I was completely so immersed. And mm -hmm. you can't do that. You can't finish work in the evening for Aston Martin Cognizant Formula One team and then <laughs> start devoting a couple of hours to writing a novel. You can't be so immersed. So look, I'm 59 at the end of this year. Uh, I don't know how long I will continue to work full-time in Formula One, perhaps for a little while yet, mm -hmm. if Formula One will have me. I'm sure and they will. at some point I will stop or perhaps begin to soft pedal. Uh, and at that point, perhaps I will look to write a novel again. I did enjoy doing it and it was reasonably well received and it is making money for charity. So why would one not do that? No, exactly. And I will put my, hold my hands up here. I haven't read it, but you know, you've convinced me. It's de it's definitely something I'm gonna I'm gonna at least purchase and 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 have a look through because it well, sounds like it's a very interesting story. It's readily available in paperback and Kindle format on Amazon. The Boy Made the Difference by Matt Bishop. Brilliant. Well, that's a, that's the best promotion that we could have had for that. Um, let's get, let's come back to Formula One now. Obviously, you're you're with and we've mentioned the name a few times now. Aston Martin Cognizant Formula One team. Um, you've been there since January. Uh, is this this year? Um, how's your year been so far? It, it, I think without without being um, rude or anything like that, I think you probably came in with higher expectations this year um, of, of the team, not necessarily you uh, personally, but the, the Aston Martin team uh, in general came in with higher expectations uh, of the year. Um, and the start of the season wasn't exactly what you wanted, but it has slowly become, um, it's getting better basically um, for, for you. Uh, I've on known the, track. the team for, you know, I've known the team since its inception, really, when it was Jordan. Um, yeah. and then Midland and Spiker and Force India. No, yes, Force India, and then and then Racing Point, and now Aston Martin. And uh, yeah, I've always respected the team. I knew some of the seniors very well, and do still know Otmar Safnauer, Andy Stevenson. You know, I would dis describe as mates, and, mm -hmm. and I knew them. I've known them for years, and I'm. It's lovely working with them. But I also yeah. knew going back in the past, I knew Eddie Jordan and Ian Phillips and all, all the others, all the others. And I've, I've obviously the drivers that have driven for the team over the years. So Team Silverstone, if you'd like to call it that, uh, I've known very well and respect it. I always thought it punched above its weight and did a good job doing that punching above its weight. Absolutely. So I was very excited when Lawrence Stroll invited me to join because I thought it would now have the two things that it's never had. One is a seriously prestigious name, because what does Racing Point mean really? Mm. Not very much. What does Aston Martin mean? It means everything in the world. Oh, absolutely. One of the most prestigious brands in the world of any kind, not just automotive. So I was excited and still am excited. If someone, you know, you meet somebody 
And they say, what do you do? I work for Aston Martin. Oh, wow. Mm. wow. It has that kind of cachet to it and always will. Yeah. And the other thing it needed was money. They needed more money. Lawrence Stroll brought that. Both personally, because he's a multi-billionaire, mm-hmm. uh, but also because he and the Aston Martin name together made corporates realize that this was a sporting um, team uh, rights holder that we would like to get behind. Mm. So Cognizant is the title partner and you know, a huge company. Yeah. 300,000 people work for Cognizant globally, by the way. Wow. And they're making a significant investment into our team. But so are Peroni, so are Sentinel-1, so are NetApp, so are various other um, uh, brilliant sponsors that we have. So we now have the raw material. Yes. We have that core team that's always been punching above its weight and still has all those qualities, those great engineers, those great mechanics, those great people. But we also now have the money. We have the weight with which to punch harder. Mm-hmm. We have a reasonably small factory, which we are going to replace with a bigger one, which is going to start being built soon. And we hope to have that operational within 18 months to 24 months. Okay. And that's going to make a big difference too. And we're hiring aggressively. You may have seen almost every week I've written a press release or my colleagues have written press releases, which we've issued, mm-hmm. uh, saying about the new people we've hired, whether they are outside Formula One or indeed uh, taken or induced from other, or attracted from other Formula One teams, particularly Red, Red Bull, Bull this year, yeah. Way, but anyway, <laughs> all's fair in love and war and Formula of One. Of course. That's how it works. Yes. Uh, anyway, anyway, so, so th- they are great people, but also there'll be people that you wouldn't have read press releases about. We currently have 500 and odd employees we want to have 800 and odd employees that's a big growth but we want to be able to do that within the context of the uh, budget cap which of course is going to be a significant issue for all Formula One teams there are some Formula One teams that will have to downsize which will be a distraction we will move up to that level we will become the right size to win in Formula One and Lawrence's ambitions are limitless yeah you know, he's always won in every business he has taken uh, a great interest in, and he intends to win in this one. I don't know when that will come. He says, he said the other day in an interview, within the next four, five, or six years. That's what he said. Mm-hmm. I think that's entirely believable. No, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree with you there. I mean, you, the great Mercedes, you've got the Mercedes power unit, and you've got a, a great team, got established a four-time world champion uh, in Sebastian Vettel, the guy that we were talking about earlier. Uh, and obviously, we've got uh, Lance Stroll, Lawrence's son. Um, is Lawrence... Who, who the, by, by the way, Lance Stroll, who is very, very quick. Very quick, very talented, still only 22, you know. Still only 22. And, you know, let's just say, it's worth saying, I, I talked about it uh, a little while ago when I praised Lewis Hamilton in 2007. Yeah for matching a double world champion. Well, here we are, fast forward to 2021, and Lance Stroll is matching a four-time world champion. Mm-hmm. I, I know you, I think Seb was struggling a little bit at the beginning of the year, and he's found his feet, and he's got his mojo back, and he's now driving brilliantly. But by and large, session for session, 
Lance is matching him. And I think he's probably underappreciated for that rather remarkable achievement. I, I completely agree. Um, actually, uh, from the scene, obviously, you, unfortunately, the internet is full of trolls and full of, uh, you know, people, as I said earlier, anonymously able to say whatever they want without any kind of repercussion. Um, but he isn't a, a, a Mazepin, as it were. You know, he is a very talented driver. Um, absolutely. And, and, and he absolutely deserves to be in that that seat um full stop and I, I say this on all all of our podcasts that we have when we discuss obviously lance uh, he absolutely does deserve his seat within formula one and and at the aston martin team so um in terms of the relationship that you have with those do you do you, do you speak to them often do you, do you do you kind of prep them for for their kind of press releases that sort of thing yeah uh, for their press conferences yes i do uh, generally we do media briefings on a thursday um because of thursday morning uh, Thursday lunchtime, uh, because we do the media sessions on the Thursday afternoon at Grand Prix. Yeah. We also do some other media sessions uh, between races sometimes, but mostly we centre it around, uh, during the season, we centre it on the Thursday. They have to do some other stuff, obviously, after quali and after the race sometimes. Yeah. But Thursday, for all teams, is, is the media day, so yes, I do the briefings. Um, yeah, and uh, it, it's interesting to talk to them in that process. I mean, Sebastian's been around a long, long time, yeah. so he often wants to engage in a longer debate on the subject, <laughs> which is interesting. Yeah. And, 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 and of course, you know, in, in particularly this year in recent races, particularly, um, Sebastian has wanted to discuss not just, you know, the sporting side of what he's going to say or what he's going to wear, uh -huh. because, uh, you know, he, 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 the Hungarian Grand Prix, he was, you know, he wore his rainbow uh, sneakers and then he wore his rainbow mask and then he wore his rainbow uh, T-shirt. And he knew perfectly well, so we discussed it, that that would uh, create a, a significant media stir. Mm -hmm. uh, Lance doesn't do that. Lance is 22. Yeah, of course. He, he doesn't need to do that. He's focusing on his racing career. But uh, Seb wants to use his platform to make other statements in the same way as Lewis does. Yeah. You know, they're both multiple champions and they're both in their mid-30s. Uh, they've gone from boy to man and they want to use their platform in a way that benefits humankind and good on both of them. There was, um, obviously, last year, there was a, a big shock for uh, Aston Martin to take on uh, Sebastian Vettel um, last year. But it, it made complete sense to me because he's a four-time world champion. He's, he's going to be massive globally uh, for, for the brand. Um, but it did kind of leave out, obviously, Checo, who people respect as, as one of the great drivers on the grid um, at the moment. But, you know, he found his feet in Red Bull, didn't he? Um, have you been impressed with how Sebastian's kind of fallen in with the team and, and, and kind of is got rid of that slump that he was in with, with Ferrari. Uh, he's kind of, as you say, you, you're impressed with the things that he's doing off track in terms of, you know, his, his campaign yeah. campaigning. So I, I would say, of course, I know Checo. I worked with Checo at um, uh, McLaren in 2013. Yeah, sure. So I know that Checo is a good driver and a nice guy. And of course he's improved over the years from 2013 and throughout, throughout all that period at, uh, uh, Force India Racing Point and indeed winning a Grand Prix for Racing Point, you know, so I rate Checo. In the end, three into two wouldn't go mm -hmm. uh, and Sebastian Vettel, a four-time world champion, was available. Uh, perfect person to work with 
Lance Stroll. So we have a perfect blend of uh, experience and raw youth talent. And they actually learn off each other mm. and, uh, and spark properly off each other. But actually, the whole, term, the whole team learns off Sebastian because he's been there and done that. He's won the championship not once, not twice, not three times, or four times. Yeah. And he knows how to win championships. And, you know, when you hear him on the radio talking uh, through the sessions and even during the race qualifying, you know, I think one of our engineers said it's like having a data engineer in the cockpit. Wow. And that is how it is. It's just very, very methodical, accurate, analytical. And he's done it all so many times before. So it's not just Lance that learns mm -hmm. off Seb. It's everybody in our team. He's a great person to have in the team. Uh, so, yes, I, I, I've been very, very impressed with him. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege to work with him. I'm, you know, I've been very, very lucky extremely lucky in my career you know to to actually i mean i don't know how many people have worked with four world champions but i have i've worked with uh obviously sebastian now but i've worked also with lewis hamilton and fernando alonso mm -hmm. and jensen button and in terms of on track you know in the last 15 years those four are among the very biggest stars and in terms of off track in terms of uh the fascination of, of seeing them change and, and embrace the wider remit of what a global superstar can do. I think Lewis and Sebastian are up there with anyone. You know, I, I, I call them Marcus Rashford on wheels. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I can, see, I can see the similarities. I can see what you're, what you're getting at. Okay. Um, I don't want to keep you too long, but I could speak to you forever. Uh, but <laughs> there's there's a few questions that we always like to ask all of our guests when we go on. Go for so it. As go long for as you it. don't mind being here, I do apologise for keeping you. I'm all good. Um, these are these uh, these are general questions. These aren't specific to you. So, but but they are questions that we do ask all our guests. If there was a race, a flyaway race that you would want everyone to go to, that you think is you know the uh, cut above the rest of the flyaway races for uh, say a fan that's only ever been to Silverstone has, uh, has, has seen, or any of our fans at home, which race would you choose for them to go and fly away to? Do you, does that include Europe or you mean? You can be, yeah, uh, yeah. You can Europe, you can do, yeah. The, you know, America. Okay. Because often we talk about flyaway, meaning the races that you can't drive to. Yeah, sure. The, Sorry. Yeah. The trucks. So if you mean abroad, yeah. then for me, there's one answer. The answer is Monza. Oh, okay. Because Monza has everything. You know, Monza has been hosting Grand Prix since long before there was Formula One. Mm -hmm. You know, that when, when there was an Italian Grand Prix, but it wasn't Formula One in the 20s and 30s, I mean. And all the greats have won at Monza. Mm. And it has changed really very little. And you can still go out on the banking and have a walk around. Mm -hmm. And if you get a chance to walk the track at Monza or to get up super early and walk into the track as the dew is on the grass, yeah. you somehow feel that you can feel the presence of Alberto Oscari's ghost. <laughs> that sounds very airy-fairy, but, you know, he died there. Yeah. Uh, died there testing a, a Ferrari. Um, by the way, he was wearing a normal um, shirt and a tie, <laughs> no overalls. <laughs> and 
he he just uh, only a few days before he'd gone into the harbour uh, at Monaco and swum to safety. Then he went to Monzo and uh, uh, and was killed. Yeah. Of course, there's a corner named after him now, Variante Ascari, and the Tifosi, who of course always support Ferrari, which is a team I have never worked for, mm-hmm. but they bring a passion to it, which is extraordinary to see. And even though, you know, when I was at McLaren and if we won there, they hated it. But nonetheless, you knew you were somewhere, somewhere that was a, a real centre of sporting passion. And, and Monza is like that. Also, it's the fastest circuit. Mm. It's the oldest circuit. It's the most full of heritage and glory, if you like. Yeah, I love Monza. Also, you know, good restaurants, nice place to stay around. <laughs> Great choice. I, we, I think we have had somebody say Monza before. I can't remember who it was now. They're off the top of my head. But um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a legendary track, really. Um, well, okay. Well, let's, let's ask you about the current season in F1 then. There are, there are two realistic chances uh, of, of the champions for this year. Um, you've got somebody we've spoken about already, Lewis Hamilton, uh, the seven-time uh, world champion, uh, or we've got the young pretender, Max Verstappen, um, who has been in the lead for a portion of the, uh, uh, of the season so far, but obviously has recently just been overtaken uh, at the Hungary Grand Prix uh, by Lewis Hamilton. Who do you think, if you had five English pounds and you were going to go into a bookmaker's uh, and put your five pounds on, who would you put your five pounds on today? I do have five English pounds, fortunately. Um, <laughs> a little bit more. But, <laughs> but, but, but I'm not really a, a gambler anymore. I used to be but, uh, in my youth. Uh, look, the, the, the boring and obvious answer is I don't know, because nobody does. No. There isn't a person in the world who knows. So let's just get that out of the way, because nobody knows. And there are too many conflicting variables, really, to make a serious prediction. What I will say, is this. I think that Hamilton versus Verstappen is a wonderful contest. It is becoming quite uh, heated. Mm -hmm. Um, But guess what? You know, we are in the entertainment business. And as long as nobody comes to any harm, bring that on. Yeah. Uh, uh, So so I think that's a good thing. I think one of them is towards the end of his career. And the other is perhaps still closer to the beginning of his career than the end of it. Yeah. There is an age difference. Uh, there is a temperamental difference. Um, and it may well go down to the wire. I don't know who will win it, but what I'll say is this. Nobody ever got poor betting on Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> so that's where my five... <laughs> That's fair. That is fair. Absolutely. Definitely fair. Um, well, okay, well, this isn't what we usually ask our, our ones, but I want, I want your opinion on it because there's been the talk of the internet since it happened at Silverstone. What, were you, what was your take on the, on, on the, turn, the turn four incident? What, uh, no, Cops, Cops incident, sorry, um, between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton? Racing incident. Racing incident and, you know... I'll just say this, you know, there are many people better qualified than I to talk about this, Mm. including current racing drivers and uh, ex-racing drivers. So I hope not to annoy anybody by, uh, you've asked me, I didn't uh, volunteer my view, you asked for it. (laughs) In my view, 
obviously sometimes you have to apportion blame to uh, such a coming together. And if it's 80-20, 80% somebody's fault and 20% somebody's fault, then yes, that's clearly, you can apportion that blame. But usually uh, it's a little bit closer, well, often it's a bit closer than that, but it's rarely 50-50. It's rarely precisely 50-50. Mm -hmm. So, you know, probably it was 60% Lewis and 40% Max. But 60-40, for me, still sits in the remit of a racing incident. Absolutely. I'm sure Christian Horner is not watching this. He's got far better things to do. But if he is, I know he will completely disagree. Sorry, Christian. <laughs> he would if he was, maybe if his driver was on the other uh, side of the uh, argument. That, that's how Formula One is. You, you know, you try to win on track. You try to win off track. Uh, no quarter is given. All is fair in love, war and Formula One. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that's a great uh, soundbite to end on, actually. So uh, I'll, what I'll say is thank you very much for coming to chat to me this, uh, this evening. Um, it's been great. And as I say, I'm sure there are plenty of anecdotes that you've got that you haven't told me. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll have to have you on another time uh, to dis discuss those. But it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much for coming, to, coming today. Thank you very much indeed. Brilliant. Okay, well, that's uh, my interview with Matt Bishop. Thank you. Well, that was really great sitting down with Matt Bishop and having that really good talk with him. I felt like I could talk to him for hours. Thank you very much for tuning in to listen. Please, while you're here, if you head over to your socials, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at the handle at JoinEF1. Please make sure you like, follow and share. Also, we do have our website, www.everythingf1.com. And of course, this podcast itself is on your favourite streaming so podcast streaming services. If you could hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review if you really liked us, it really will help us to get into the ears of more fans just like yourself. All that's left for me to say is thank you very much for tuning in today and we will speak to you again soon. Bye-bye.